ready to get started today? Great. Uh, I want to ask you to uh, turn your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to end up there in just a few moments, but today we're going to talk about with Christ. And uh, this uh, message is for uh, everyone who is in a situation, recognizing the situation that we're in, that our world is going a tad bit crazy right now. Our country is a tad bit divided right now. There's a lot going on in which people are being uh, um, polarized and um, almost forced to go in one direction or the other, get on this side of this teeter-totter or that side of the teeter-totter and uh, choose your battle lines. And there's, there's a great deal of division. There's a great deal of confusion. Uh, we're not sure who or what to believe because we don't know if what we're getting is reality, truthful, or is it just simply someone's agenda? It's a weird time that we're living in right now, and it's causing a lot of confusions. But I would submit to you today that through Christ, we can cut through all of the confusion, all of the malarkey, and we can have a clear vision of what God's call is for our lives, for our church, and for our community. Jesus, uh, in the last days of his life, stood up in Jerusalem. It's recorded there in Matthew 23, 37. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. We see that when people are unwilling to come to Christ, they're stuck on being independent. They're stuck on themselves. They're stuck on my way. I don't need a savior. I don't want a savior. I don't want that savior. And they continue to be what the Bible calls stiff-necked or hard-hearted, and they go their own way. We find that Christ is still longing. He makes this statement in the flesh. He is a person, man, the God-man. And yet you hear in his verbiage and in his intonation, this longing of a God that for thousands of years has longed to gather people to himself, not gather people to a way of thinking or a denomination or a movement, but to himself. We hear the cry of a God for thousands of years who said, won't you come to me? Please come to me. I am longing for you. I'm, I'm trying to gather you to myself. And yet people for many years have resisted. You and I probably for some period of time in our lives resisted God. And we thought, no, I'm going to do it my way. My way's a little bit better. We had all of our reasons. But thanks be to God that there comes that point in time when we realize my way's not working. I think God's way is going to work. And we come to Christ and we are transitioned. We are we are revolutionized. The Bible says it's like going from blindness to sight, from death to life. And that is that experience that he calls being born again. And here Jesus is making that appeal to this holy city, Jerusalem. When people go their own way and they reject Christ and they reject God's way. They find themselves eventually being overwhelmed with the cares of life, overwhelmed with the difficulties, overwhelmed with the questions overwhelmed with not knowing what's up, what's down, what's going to work, what's not going to work, which way should I go, how should I handle this situation. They're overwhelmed because they're out of connection with God. 
People are overwhelmed with divided hearts, fractured marriages, and decaying morals. It's amazing the things that we put up with in an effort to live our own lives separated from God. You're in 1 Samuel chapter number 30. We're going to read about David. Now we say King David, but at this time he's not actually king. Let me give you kind of a background on David in this situation. He has been anointed king by the prophet under the instruction of God about 13 years prior to this event that we're going to read. David's been anointed king, but he's not the king. Saul is still the king. Saul hates David. Saul has tried to kill him for nearly a decade. So David has these 600 warriors. These are not uh, soft-handed men. These are warriors doing battle. But there's a problem. Let's read here in 1 Samuel chapter 30, starting in verse number 3. When David and his men reached Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire, and their wives and their sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured, Ahinoam, the Jezreelite, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. Then David said to Abathar the priest, Bring me the ephod. Abathar brought it to him, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. Here we find that David, we, we see David experiencing three things. Number one is an assessment. David was living in a weird time. Some of it his own making, but most of it not. He didn't cause all of these things to happen. And here we find David has been anointed king, but he's not king. He has actually been marching with his 600 men, with the army of the Philistines, sworn enemies of Israel. He's actually been fighting with the Philistines, not against Israel, but against other people. But now the Philistines are getting ready to march against Israel and do battle against Israel. So the leaders of the army say, hey, wait a minute, David's one of them, and his men are them. We have people of Israeli descent in the ranks with us. And we're concerned that in the middle of the battle, they will switch and begin fighting against us. So they said, tell David, can't march with us now. So the Philistine who was over David goes to him and says, hey, David, man, this is not my choice. I'm not deciding this. You've been very faithful. But the leaders are saying, you can't march with us. So here David's been anointed king, but he's not king. Saul hates him, has been trying to kill him. David could have killed Saul, but said, no, I'm not going to touch God's anointed. He goes and he makes an alliance with the enemy, which is a whole other story. He's marching with them. Now the enemy has rejected him. He's rejected by Saul. He's rejected by the Philistines. And now 
They come back to the city where they had left their wives and their children. And now the city's been burned and everybody's gone. They've all been taken captive. And these 600 men, again, not lightweights. These 600 men are talking about stoning David, which means there's going to be a coup. Somebody else is going to take over. You imagine the guy that broke the news of that to David? Hey, David, just want to let you know the men are thinking about stoning you, and we're not talking tequila. <laughs> you know, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just, you know, you imagine being the guy? Because, I mean, you, got, you know, David wasn't a lightweight either. I mean, this guy was tough, and he's got 600 tough guys around. I mean, these are warriors. But David hears, man, everybody is rejecting me. Everybody's turned against me. See, the, the struggle that he was in, he was having to assess the reality of the future against the reality of the day. I know I've been anointed to be king, but I know the king hates me. The, evidently, the Philistines don't like me either. My own men are thinking about killing me. It's like, thank you, Lord, I'm anointed to be the kingdom of one guy, me. And that's not really a kingdom. He's having to assess, where am I? Who am I? Whose am I? I think maybe that resonates with some of us today. We know the promises of God, and yet we're dealing with the day in which we live, which doesn't appear to line up with the promises. David had to make an assessment of all of those things. But secondly, David had to make an ask, and that's what he did. He said, bring the ephod to me. I'm, we're going to inquire of the Lord. The Bible says he found strength in the Lord. He strengthened himself in God, but he made an ask. He said, what should I do? You know, when you're feeling lonely, that's, that's the question you got to ask. But he understood that the I was connected to the we. In other words, David is saying, I'm in a group of 600 men they don't like me right now, but we're together. He wasn't asking God, what should we do? He said, God, what should I do? But he knew his I would be connected to the we. You know, sometimes you don't know how God's going to answer your prayers. You, you think about all the, the answers that God could have given him. God, what should I do? Should I pursue this, this party and cap, recapture our families? Yeah. Like, David, with who? The guys are going to kill you. Like, who are you going to go with? David understood the I was connected to the we. But the only way the I can be connected to the we is that there's an I. We must be individuals connected together. It is impossible to be connected unless we are individuals. And there are times in our lives when we have to say, God, what is it what you want me to do? I know I'm connected with the body of Christ but I am responsible to hear from you and to know what you want me to do. Maybe that resonates with some people here today that you need to say, God, what's next for me? And then, yes, what's next for my family? What's next for the body of Christ? Where is this community going? But it starts with the individual. He had to make that ask. And of course, they, uh, God did not say, uh, run fast. He didn't say fight by yourself. He said, go pursue. You'll recapture everything. 
And that's what caused the 600 men to unite. When, God, when David was able to say, God's given me a word and we're going forward, then they were united. But the third thing that David had to do was to take action. God always gives us a word, but then he always expects us to take action. He always expects us to do something about it. The most frustrated people in the whole world, as far as the body of Christ is concerned, are those who get a word from God, but then sit on it. They get a word from God, but then they say, yeah, but, you know, maybe it's not the right timing, and maybe we don't have the right things, and maybe we're, maybe, we're, maybe how come, possibly, but instead, God says, I've given you a word, go in the strength of that word. No, you don't have all the answers. I'll provide the answers as you go. David could have said, well, what time of the day do we attack this enemy of ours? How do we attack them from the left, the right? No, the word said go. And so David went and he took action. And it was while he was taking action that I'm sure God gave them more and more revelation as to what to do and how. Now, the book of Hebrews tells us that everything written in the Old Testament is for our benefit. We look at David and we see this situation that I think resonates with us today. There needs to be an assessment of where do I stand? Who am I? Where do I stand? With all this turmoil and confusion, who am I? And we make an ask of God, what do you want me to do? And then thirdly, we've got to take action. But you know, if we look ahead to the New Testament, you can turn, please, to the Gospel of John in the New Testament. The Gospel of John in chapter number 21. We see here a, a man that we know a pretty good amount about, and that is the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Peter finds himself in much the same type situation. Because here the Apostle Peter recognizes that Jesus has chosen 12. 12 to be his disciples, his close companions. It is the 12 that Jesus gives great revelation to. He talks with earnest and closeness and in depth to the 12. But to the multitudes, he would talk in parables. He would talk in parables and stories and principles and illustrations. But when he was with the 12, he would explain these things. And he would, he would tell them more of the deep things of God and the kingdom and how things were going to operate. He talked about 12 thrones in the future. He, he really got deep with the 12. And Peter is one of those 12s, and he's recognizing this. Jesus talks on a shallow level to the multitude, but he gets deep with us. Not only was Peter one of the 12, but you could say he was one of the three. We see many times Jesus pulling aside Peter, James, and John for certain things that would happen, whether it be praying for someone or a mount of transfiguration. And so Peter understood, I'm, I'm not only one of the 12, but Jesus actually calls me to do certain things that he leaves the other nine out of. He sees the kingdom of God being explained to him in ways that they're not explained to the multitude. And he's trying to figure this all out. He's trying to look at his life. He's trying to look at the kingdom. He's trying to look at the future. He's seeing and hearing all of these promises. This is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. And yet Peter finds himself having to deal with the day in which he lived and the season of time in which he was in. It was the, the Apostle Peter. Don't we just love the Apostle Peter? For man, he was a man of action. He would go for it. Sometimes he didn't do such a good job. Sometimes he was wrong. 
Well, man, he went for it, no doubt. Here's some bold statements that Peter made. You'll, you'll remember these, I'm sure. First one he made, he says, if that's you, tell me to come to you. You remember where he made that statement? He was in a boat in the middle of a storm, but Jesus was walking on the water. And so Peter, I mean, out of, the, out of all the guys in the boat, he says, if that's you, you tell me to come to you. In other words, give me the command, give me the permission. And Jesus said one word, come. And Peter walked on water, a miracle, an absolute wonderful miracle. And to my knowledge, the only person that's ever done that. He says, if that's you, tell me to come to you. Another statement he made was, you will not wash my feet. Remember that? Jesus is going around and washing the disciples' feet, and he gets to Peter, and he goes, not going to happen, Lord. And Jesus said, okay, then you have nothing to do with me. And Peter made a U-turn real quick. He said, okay, not just my feet. You wash whatever. You need to wash it all. Jesus said, just the feet's fine. Okay? So here Peter's making these bold statements. He's trying to figure out, where do I stand? Where... What is this all about? Another statement he makes is, I will never leave you. (laughs) And that's when Jesus looks at him and says, actually, before the rooster announces the morning, you will have denied me three times. Got it wrong again. He's trying to figure it out. He's trying to assess what's really going on. But the fourth thing that he says He says, I'm going fishing. Just a simple statement. I'm going fishing. Now, that's what he was doing before Jesus called him. He said, I'm going fishing. We find here in in John chapter 21, this is where he makes this statement. Look at there, verse number three. John 21, three. I am going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we're going to go too. So they went and got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. And he called to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they replied. And he said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. (laughs) Here, Peter, he says, I'll never leave you. Jesus says, You're going to deny me three times. That happens. Jesus is crucified. He's buried, but then Jesus is resurrected. This is the third time Jesus has appeared to his disciples. They're out in a boat. Peter's Peter's trying to figure it out. He goes, okay, all right, I think I'm a big shot. I'm not that big of a shot, and I'm making these mistakes. But Jesus has risen from the dead. That changes everything. Jesus has risen. So in other words, all this stuff I've been hearing about, it's true, and it's really going to happen. But yet he's finding himself going, I'm going fishing. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do it. I don't know when to do it. I don't know the next step for the kingdom that I'm this integral part of. So I'm going fishing. You ever been there? 
You ever been trying to assess where you are in life and you're like, okay, I, 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 I know these things about the future, but I'm dealing with today. And I'm, I'm just going to go fishing. I'm just going to whatever. We, do, we deal with that. And it's a good struggle. But it's imperative that we struggle. It is imperative that we do that and we make good decisions. And here Peter says, I'm going fishing. But what was it that changed his trajectory? It was when Jesus appeared to him. That's when it changed. When all of a sudden Jesus is there and he says, hey, I got no condemnation for you fishing. Great. Did you catch anything? No. Want some help? Cast your net on that side of the boat. And all of a sudden, John gets that revelation. That's the Lord. And Peter says, I got to get to him. He puts on that outer garment and jumps into the water. Usually it's in reverse, but he, he said, all right, I'm, I'm taking it with me. Here we go. And he jumps into the water because he wanted to be the first one to get to Jesus. That's what I think. You don't have to believe that. I think he just went, I'm going to get there fast. I can't wait for them to like, you know, pull up the anchor, drag in the net. I'm getting to Jesus. Man, that's the heartbeat of the disciple of Jesus Christ. I want to get to Jesus. When we're trying to assess who we are, we've got to make that ask, God, what do you want me to do? What is the next step for me? And then we've got to take action. It was Jesus who made the ask. You, you, you could keep reading there, and we find that Jesus you know, they eat breakfast, they have some fish. He says, hey, throw some of that new fish on here, some of that fresh fish on here. And they had some bread there, and nobody asked where it came from. And all of a sudden, Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? It was here that Jesus was asking the question. Peter, do you love me? Peter says, man, Lord, you know I love you. He said, feed my lambs. He says, giving him those marching orders. He again asked him, three times he asked him, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. And every time Jesus is saying, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my little ones, feed the flock. And he's giving Peter those marching orders. We find, and just bring this to a conclusion, we're going to have a time of, of prayer. There's an, an action for the rest of Peter's life. He was determined to do exactly what Jesus had told him in that moment. You see, as believers of Christ, if we're going to assess properly and ask obediently and take action, then we've got to have a fresh view of the cross. That's where the turning point for all of Christianity is. It is the cross of Jesus Christ. It is at the cross that we begin to understand and see God's assessment of our sin. You see, we can assess ourselves all day long, but if we do it apart from a vision of the cross, we can go haywire. We can get off track. But the cross is God's assessment of our sin. It's God's assessment of you without him, and that is bad. He says your, God's assessment of our sin is on the cross because Jesus had to pay the price for our sin. Our sins is what separate us from God. Our sin is what causes us to be rebellious and go in the wrong direction. And we can blame our ancestors all day long, but the bottom line is all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And God looks at our sin and he says, that's the problem. 
It is a sinful heart. It is a rebellious nature. But it is the cross of Jesus Christ that paid the price for our sin so that we don't have to bear our sin. We don't have to carry our sin. We don't have to, to, to carry that knapsack, that backpack around on us filled with our sins and filling ever fuller. He says, no, I'm cutting that off if you'll put your faith in me. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ and the work that he did on the cross, we're saying, God, I recognize that your assessment of me is right that without Christ, I'm lost and I have no hope of my future. I, I, my assessment of myself really doesn't matter. I can think I'm the, I'm the best in the world, but apart from Christ, I'm not, not even close. It is when we come in connection with the assessment of God for our own sin, and he assessed that on the cross. He said, I'm paying for your sin. That's how bad it is. The price is higher than you're able to pay but I'm paying the price for your sin. You think about the fact that God poured out his wrath on himself so that you can be free from wrath. God put all of our sin on the shoulders, if you will, of Jesus Christ and put him on a cross to say, there's the penalty being paid. There, there's the marks on his body. There's the blood that is spilled because that is what the price is for your sin. And God paid the price for our sin. Isn't that great? God did. And we come to that fresh vision of the cross and come back to that point. That's what centers our lives on the will of God. We can get so distracted with all of this stuff happening, but when we come to the foot of the cross, life becomes very clear. We were sinners. Christ paid for our sin. And now we are free from sin. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus paid the price on our sin because God assessed our sin as being very, very bad. Our repentance is the ask God is listening for. The ask of God, David asked, what should I do? Before you know Christ, when you come to God and you say, what do you want me to do? He's saying, repent. And that is God, forgive me of my sin. Please wash me clean of my sin. I receive what Christ did on the cross for my sins. He paid it all. And I receive that by faith into my life. And that's when we ask God, please forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Bible says if we confess our sin, he is just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the God that we serve. He doesn't say, oh, you got to jump through hoops. You got to do this thing and you got to come over here and you got to clean your life up. He said, just come to me, ask and believe and I forgive you. That's the God that we serve. Amen? And the third thing, and finally, is that a resurrected Savior leads us in love to take action. A resurrected Savior. What is the one that Peter saw? A resurrected Savior. When you go to the cross, you will instantly be taken to a resurrected Savior. I'm so thankful that Jesus died on the cross. I'm so thankful that he paid the price for our sin. I'm so thankful that he poured out his blood for us. I'm so thankful for all of that. But I got to tell you, he rose from the dead. He left no doubt that he was the Messiah. He left no doubt that he was the Son of God. He left no doubt of who he was, is, and is to come. And he left no doubt as to the fact that if we will come to him at the cross and say, God, I put my faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sin and my eternal destiny, Jesus left no doubt because he rose from the dead. 
And he said, I have conquered death, hell, the grave. I have conquered sin. I have conquered eternity. I've conquered all of that. And it is your job to have faith in me, not faith in a system, not faith in a pastor, not faith in a denomination, but faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. Faith in Christ for a clarity of vision in a time when we're trying to wonder what is going on and where am I in this mix? God said, you want a clarity of vision? Come to the cross. You want to know what to do? Come to the cross. If you want to know what's important and what's not important, come to the cross. Other than that, we could easily get sidetracked. We can easily get sidetracked into this agenda and that agenda to this argument and that argument. Jesus said, come to the cross. It will become very clear. But coming to the cross is not what the majority does. Coming to the cross is not what the vast majority of people will do, even in the southeast of America. Jesus did not say the, the way to destruction is wide and the path to life is narrow, except in the southeast of, of, of America. Some of you get that later. He said the way is broad to destruction, the way to life is narrow few are they that find it. I'm not saying you're going to become in the majority all of a sudden and you're going to be popular about your decisions. Let me tell you something. You come to the cross, things become very, very clear. And I think in the day in which we live, we need clarity. Assess yourself. Where are you? Do you know Christ as your Savior? I mentioned earlier, if you're here today, you say, well, I'm, I'm exploring. I'm not a Christian. I'm not a follower of Christ. Thank you for not being ashamed of that. Thank you for being honest. That's, that's awesome. Nobody can deal with falseness. So thank you for being honest. We've been praying for you, and we're so glad that you're here. Thank you for being here. My question is, is that working for you? When you assess your life and you assess, okay, I, I think there's more. I think there's something better that my life is to be connected to. And I'm, I'm submitting to you, that is Christ. That's the missing component in your life. It's Christ. My encouragement to you, my appeal to you, my, my hope for you is that you'll receive Christ into your life. You say, Lord, please forgive me of my sin. I know I've done stuff wrong. We all have. God, please forgive me. Please forgive me. That'll change everything in your life. That'll change everything in a moment. But to the Christian, for those of us who are following Christ, might we not need to go back to the cross? And say, God, all this confusion, I can't, live, I can't live with all this stuff. God, I want to go back to the cross and become very singular in my vision and my purpose. That's what happened with the Apostle Paul. That's what happened to the Apostle Peter. That's what happened with all the disciples. They became very singular because of the cross. They became very singular because of the resurrection. And they said, I know what's important. I know what's important. I know what my life is going to be about. I believe God's calling some young people today to really come to the cross and to recognize, you know, our lives can be uh, uh, taken in so many different directions. But God is putting a call on some young people's lives to come into a fuller relationship with him and even to ministry for him. God's calling people to say, you know what, what's important is all this stuff we're dealing with. It has a level of importance, but not like the cross. The cross stands apart as higher and greater than anything else. And we're called to live in the shadow, if you will, of the cross.